You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alamani, anchor of the Early 202 newsletter at the Washington Post and also a congressional correspondent. In the last week, cyber attacks have become a top concern for many officials worldwide. My guest today is Representative John Kako, ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Representative Kako, welcome back to Post Live. Thanks for joining us on this extraordinarily busy week. Thanks for having me. I'm getting hungry looking at that uh, cupcake in our budget. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not edible. Um, and I want to give a reminder to our audience, we want you to join in in our conversation. So please tweet your questions and comments to the handle at Post Live. Uh, Congressman, I know you're just out of the House Republican Conference meeting this morning. We're told that uh, Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, who is Ukrainian, spoke. Can you give us a readout of her message to her colleagues this morning? Well, uh, I was I was not there for that portion of the meeting, but I last night. She's, she's, she's full of angst, obviously, for the Ukrainian people and where, where she came from, uh, as all of us are. You know, I, I have relatives in Ukraine right now that I'm terribly about, as all of us are. And uh, uh, her, her message is one of real concern. And I think one of her messages that she said last night, and I'm sure she said today, was uh, the real story about what's going on over there is probably much worse than what's being reported. And that's a real concern going forward. There's real human tragedy going on, and it was wholly unnecessary on the part of Putin. And, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us to support them in every way we possibly can and to make life as difficult as we can for the Russians so that maybe just maybe they'll, they'll wake up and realize that this isn't worth it and, and stop this nonsense. Well, and on, on that comment that you just made about things being uh, likely being worse than we realize, is that the sense that you got from senior administration officials last night at, at a classified briefing? I know there's obviously only so many details you can share about that, but uh, that things are, are worse than we realize, including casualty counts at the moment? Well, I, I, can, I, I can't reveal what's classified information, but I can tell you generally that there are heavy casualties and that there's also weapons that the Russians have that they are implementing that uh, and are reportedly implementing that are uh, basically uh, truly awful in nature. And I think that's what Victoria was referring to. And that's what folks were referring to last night. And it's been reported in the, in the media as well. And uh, um, trying to figure out exactly what, what, you know, what those weapons are and how they're being used. There's some pretty awful weapons that they're going to implement. Uh, there's been reports of cluster bombs and uh, these other things that uh, um, are, are, are really awful. What about nuclear weapons? Has the U.S. detected any change in Russia's nuclear posture since Putin's order went out on Sunday? No. Uh, and in fact, I think the United States, uh, if, 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 it, if they thought it was a real eventuality, uh, that their nuclear forces would have been on higher alert than they are right now. And we just have to be careful with what we're doing. I know there's some alert and there's some heightened alert, uh, but I think uh, basically they're taking wait and see approach and obviously we're monitoring the situation very, very closely. When you start talking about nuclear weapons, you, you really, you, it really indicates, it's indicative of the instability with respect to Putin. To casually uh, throw that out there like he did is really uh, a sign of someone, a world leader who is not really as stable as he should be. And that's a, that's a very big concern. So I take it you don't agree with the former President Trump's assessment that, that Vladimir Putin is a genius? Uh, no, I don't think either one of them are. 
And I, I want to get back to the House GOP conference meeting quickly. Um, did Kevin, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy address uh, any of the issues that bubbled up with the conference over the weekend about two House Republicans who participated in a white nationalist conference, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar? Not to my knowledge. I, I, I don't know if they did or not after I left, but I can tell you one thing that racism and that th those types of conferences are anathema to the American public. And uh, uh, um, if they were there, I don't know any of the details, but if they were there, um, they should be called out on that. And I'm sure that, you know, they're, they're going to deal with that going forward. But make no mistake about it. That type of rhetoric is hurtful and harmful. And it's something that we should put in a rearview mirror in America and never talk about again. And for them to uh, go into places where that stuff is discussed is to me is uh, uh, very, very deeply troubling if, in fact, uh, they engage in that conduct. So uh, going forward, I, I'm sure that's something we'll be discussing more. And obviously, the two of them have already faced some punitive measures um, from House Democrats. But what about from Republicans? Do you think it's time for Republicans to um, censure them or, or take more action in some way for these continued behaviors? Well, uh, with respect to Marjorie Taylor Greene, they already have. Uh, I mean, she, she's not on any committee. So um, uh, going forward, I think it's something we have to examine the facts and, 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 and proceed accordingly. I really, I, I'm hesitant not to talk about the particulars because I don't know them, but I'm just talking generally that from a general standpoint, this type of conduct cannot be tolerated. Now, I want to get back to Ukraine. Um, why isn't the U.S. telling Ukrainians to cut a deal with the Russians before more people die? And is that something that you think the administration should be considering? Um, I don't think the Ukrainian uh, people want that. Uh, let's not forget, the Ukrainian people are hardy souls. They're strong. They're, they're determined. They're independent-minded. And if you look back after World War II, they, they resisted Stalin for close to 10 years. It's, it's in their DNA to be independent and free. And when they, when they uh, gained their freedom from the Soviet Union many, uh, many years ago, uh, they had nuclear weapons, a ton of them in Ukraine, and they gave them up with the promise that they would be protected uh, going forward. And it's sad to see that they really haven't been protected. Now, I'm not calling for U.S. military intervention or NATO military intervention, but at some point, you got to say to yourself, when, when does that red line, the red line, uh, as far as atrocities and everything else goes, when does it... Uh, change that dynamic. And I, I, I'm concerned that we're fast approaching that. And uh, to, for me, for any administration to take a military intervention off the table and then repeatedly say that to the bad guy uh, is akin to me when I was a prosecutor saying to the gangbangers who, who wreaking havoc in our cities that I prosecuted them in, saying, look, at, we're going to work with you, but uh, we're not going to prosecute you. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to run crazy in the city. And that, that's what Putin is doing right now. So uh, like I want to stress, I'm not calling for military intervention, but Taking it off the table reduces a huge deterrent effect. And now we're in a situation where we're trying to get weapons to a, to a government and a people that are, get, uh, by the minute, getting more and more encircled by their enemies. So uh, it's a real concern going forward. And what do we do if these atrocities uh, uh, spike and they really uh, skyrocket? We start seeing dead children in the streets and dead women in the streets. What are you going to do with them? Right? And uh, just keep trying to wrap their knuckles with sanctions? But he doesn't care about sanctions. And I, again, I can't say enough. I'm not saying we should take military intervention, but the same token, we, we, we should, have, should not have taken one of our key strengths off the table from the beginning. And yeah. as far as the, the, the uh, Ukrainian people go, uh, if they want peace with Russia, they can have it. But, uh, they want to fight and they're ready to fight. And as all they've asked for us for months is getting some assistance so they can fight for themselves.
And we reported last night that senior administration officials told House lawmakers uh, that they expected an insurgency um, uh, the, from the current situation to phase into an insurgency in three to four weeks. The inference being that um, the capital would potentially be taken by Russia along with leadership. Do any American officials think that Ukrainians can actually prevail against Russia here? I think the prevailing wisdom is that, uh, sadly, that Russia will ultimately prevail. They have overwhelming force, they have overwhelming uh, supplies. Um, so I think ultimately, uh, we're praying, everyone's praying for a miracle, but ultimately I think people understand that it's highly likely that it'll, it'll turn into an insurgency within a matter of weeks, if not months. We're hopeful that, uh, that the contrary happens, but I think realistically, you gotta, you gotta understand that that's probably what's going to happen. And that's why the sanctions, the more severe the sanctions can be at this point, uh, might get might get uh, emboldened the Russian people themselves to stand up to their despotic leader, who has really clearly become unbalanced, and stand up to him once and for all, and, and ask for a change in Russia that may 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 make the situation um, uh, go away. And have you received any new estimates for the amount of casualties that U.S. expects Ukrainians to suffer during the fighting? Uh, nothing, only in a classified setting, but they are quite significant. No question about it. Yeah. And what is your assessment of the Biden administration's response to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine versus their response to um, the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan? You know, I, I think the key term you used is response, because we are in response mode. Uh, what you have to do is take a step back to before the response, when they had an opportunity to influence things in a different way. And like I already said, taking military actions off the table immediately doesn't help. Uh, waiting till last minute to get lethal aid, that's missiles and, and what have you, javelin missiles and what have you to the, the Ukrainian people, uh, was a mistake. Uh, not, not having the sanctions ready to roll right away was a mistake. Are they doing better with sanctions now? Are they tightening the sanctions with their response? Absolutely. But really, um, when, when bad guys sense weakness, they will exploit the weakness. And that's what Putin did. He sensed the weakness in his administration and it's emblematic of how they handled Afghanistan and other crises, and how they didn't respond to the major cyber attacks we've had from China and Russia over the last year, year or two. And so I think the bad guys are looking at this and they're saying, well, I don't think Biden's going to do anything, so we're going in. And then you look at China and Taiwan, and they're looking at Taiwan going, and she's looking very closely at what's happening here with respect to Russia. So however, uh, whatever the shortcomings were this administration before uh, the invasion, the response, I think, has been pretty good. And I think they, they need to continue to respond in the manner they're doing. And I think by its very nature, it caused NATO to come together because NATO wasn't on the same page before the invasion. Now, not only is everybody in NATO countries on the same page, you have countries like Finland and Sweden, who are generally very, very uh, uh, against joining NATO, are talking about joining NATO. So it's been a sea change in NATO. And so ironically, Putin went into it partly to ensure that Ukraine didn't become part of NATO. And now NATO's gonna be stronger than ever. And so uh, just a lot to go with this going forward, a lot of moving parts, but I think uh, um, the administration has done a pretty good job with respect to the sanctions. Uh, I think we should do more with respect to oil and uh, cut off their oil supply to the, to the West. Uh, we could do that by the president temporarily, at least temporarily rolling back a lot of his restrictive policies with respect to oil production in the US. And, and at a minimum would send a signal to the markets that would lessen the severity of cutting off Russian oil to the U.S. 
And I think we should, ought to think about really going hardcore and doing that. That would show real leadership by the president. Um, what about a, a strategic oil reserve release? Is that something that you think should be under consideration as well from Absolutely. NATO allies? Look, if, 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 the, if the president would, would cut off Russian uh, oil supplies to the West and we all, we all just put on our chin straps and figured out how to get better production in the U.S., for example, it would go a long way towards really putting a major stranglehold on Russia. Because at, at this very moment, think about this, and I don't know if viewers understand this, when they're going to the gas tank right now, it's highly likely that some of the stuff that's going into their vehicles is oil that came, uh, is, came from oil that came from Russia. And we're funding, in part, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is pure insanity by, by my standards. So we've got to do something about that. And um, quickly before we pivot to the topic of cyber attacks, which you touched on, um, this, you know, this further unification of NATO allies and countries who were not previously part of NATO, how much credit does Joe Biden get for that? Um, well, listen, it happened on his watch, so we should get credit. Listen, um, uh, whether it was because of his actions or just because of the actions of Russia, it doesn't really matter. It happened on his watch. And so, um, you know, that's a good thing. And, and, and uh, if you may or may not know, I'm one of the most bipartisan members of Congress, so I'm not one to call out the other side just for the sake of calling him out. And that's why I say if it happened on his watch, he should take credit for it. But regardless, it's a good thing that NATO seems to be reconstituting understanding that uh, their core mission is to, is to protect the spread of, uh, of uh, bad, bad leaders like Putin. And uh, this is clearly a, 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 a sterling example of that. And as you're well aware, top of mind right now is the growing threat of a cyber attack. Are we in a place to be able to handle the tidal wave of new forms of warfare, most specifically those prompted by cyber warfare? I think the most important thing you just said there is warfare. And people have got to understand that modern war is uh, a, a key component of modern war is cyber, cyber attacks. And if you look, Russia, before they went into Ukraine, launched a massive cyber attack to basically soften them up a little bit. And uh, you know every credible army in the world has a cyber command within it, and the U.S. has a very robust cyber command. So going forward, uh, we have to understand that from a, from a war standpoint, cyber is always going to be there. But not just when you're in war. If you look at the last few years, look at what's happened in the U.S. The Russian cyber attacks on the U.S. have basically went unchecked by this administration. The JBS uh, attack on the food supply, the Colonial Pipeline, and others. Uh, Russia doesn't, uh, the state of Russia doesn't do the cyber attacks themselves. There are many robust cyber gangs within Russia that do the cyber attacks, and they do it under the imprimatur. Cyber attacks, and it's highly likely that more cyber attacks are coming, and um, we have to be ready for them. And that's why we spent a lot of time at Homeland Security over the last several years establishing CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and then beefing it up repeatedly. And Jen Easterly, who runs uh, CISA now, has done a uh, yeoman's work over there, get, getting him up to speed. And right now, we have something called Shields Up over at CISA. And any entity, whether you're an individual or a, a business or a government entity, can go to Shields Up and get help to help you harden your systems and find out where the holes are. Because I think the message is, assume you're the next to be hacked. Assume that you're the next one that's going to be attacked and act accordingly. Uh, Colonial Pipeline came to Congress after their attack and told us how they were, all the things they were doing to harden their system. And I thought to myself, where, where was this ahead of time? 
Why, why wasn't that there ahead of time? And I think every system has to understand we're in a very high cyber threat right now. We need to have the collaborative resources of CISA and the private sector working together with, through Shields Up and other entities to harden their systems as best they can, assuming that attacks are coming. Because if you do that, you lessen the severity of the attacks long-term. And I, the best way to liken it, I guess, is if you drive a car that is very unsafe and you get an accident, probably toast, right? If you are a, a very safe car when you get an accident, much more likely to survive and much more likely to recover from it. And it's the same way with respect to cyber. You've got to put resources into it and you've got to have a good car to drive. Who is most vulnerable to whatever cyber attacks might be coming? Um, I think system-wide, we're, we're all vulnerable. I mean, some, financial institutions, for example, though, they're getting attacked many times a second. So their cyber security apparatus is quite robust. So maybe other sectors, especially some critical infrastructure sectors may not be as secure as they should be. Look at the Colonial Pipeline incident. It wasn't as secure as it should be. And uh, we have to do that with respect to others, critical infrastructure uh, systems as well. Um, I, I can't really tell you which ones are and which ones aren't, but I can tell you mo most of them are not where they should be. And we need to keep continuing to get them in a better state than they are right now. And it takes money, they gotta do it. A 2021 um, communique showed that NATO would weigh whether to trigger Article 5 on the grounds of a cyber attack. How does Article 5 apply to cyber warfare and, and what kind of cyber attack should be categorized as an attack on a member of, um, of NATO? Now, that's a great question because, you know, that is really thinking about warfare in the modern, uh, modern realm like we have to. And uh, I think that is a, a discussion that needs to be had. And if you have a catastrophic cyber attack that shuts down your, your grids or shuts down your, uh, your ability to keep your people warm or in the winter or uh, the Fed or what have you, I think you gotta, we gotta, we've got to uh, figure that out. I think NATO needs to get together and have those very difficult decisions because it is a component of war, as I said before, and I think it needs to be viewed as such. Well, that leads me to my next question. Is NATO's cyber policy as developed as it should be? Um, I think it's evolving. Uh, do they have more to go? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know you and, and others have been sort of um, raising alarms about this for years now. So uh, yeah. YouTube allows con uh, Russian websites known for propaganda to make money from ads on its platforms. Do you think that that social media company should ban Russian state media? Well, I can tell you uh, right now they should at a minimum if they're bad actors. And I think it's incumbent upon them from a moral standpoint. Why enrich bad people? It's just like us enriching them with oil. That's immoral in my, my mind. And so why enrich them by allowing them to advertise on your, on your platforms? And I think these, uh, you see a lot of companies around the world uh, that are, are doing just that. They're, they're, they're cutting off uh, uh, they're cutting off uh, Russia and Russia-based entities. And I think that, uh, you know, these platforms should do the same. Lord knows they do the same with respect to bad actors on our side of the fence. So they should, they should do it for them as well, for sure. And Congressman, if we take a step back, you've been drawing attention to the issue of safeguarding our cybersecurity again for quite some time. What does the current threat landscape look like compared to when you first started to champion the idea that government should step up to the plate to prepare against potential cyber threats? I think the cyber threat is very high right now. 
but I also will, will, I'm, I'm I'm heartened by the fact that we have we have we have improved so much over the last few years since since I since I came into existence from a, a overall cyber ready, readiness and overall cybersecurity awareness. And awareness, as you know, was the first step towards uh, hardening your systems. And uh, awareness is the first step towards dealing with any problem. And CISA and the other agencies in the federal government have really done a good job with respect to that. But we, there's a lot more to go. For example, is multi-factor authentication really where it should be? No. Uh, is every entity out there really hardening their systems where they should? No, because they, they, you know, CEOs will make a choice and say, you know, we can, you know, their, their cyber guy comes to them and tells them, we need $10 million to harden our system. And the guy goes, I'm not going to spend that. The heck with that. But then they get attacked and then you figure it out. And the more that they see these attacks coming and the, and the devastation that these attacks bring, the more they're um, uh, get, stepping up to the plate. And CISA is also helping too. CISA can do threat hunting on uh, private sector or government agency systems. They can go in and kind of give you a checkup and kind of kick the tires and look at your system and say, do it all for free and say, hey, you need, you've got problems here. You need to fix this. And they can fix them. So. Uh, the threat is higher because of the, the posture room with Russia right now, and Russia is one of the worst actors with respect to cyber attacks. But I also can tell you that I think we're, we are at a much better place from a defensive posture than we have been in years, and perhaps ever. And before we change topics um, to the State of the Union and your retirement, uh, I, I realized I wanted to seek some clarification on a question I had asked you at the beginning of our conversation. You had said that neither of them are geniuses when I asked you about Trump's comment that Putin is a genius. Were you referring to Trump and Vladimir Putin? Yes. Okay. Just, just wanted to be clear. Um, and uh, the president is obviously set to address the country tonight in the State of the Union address. What will you be listening for him to say or announce? Um, I, I would I would very much love to hear. Uh, first of all, he should get credit for the sanctions he's done. Um, and like I said, the horse is already out of the barn about the weakness he portrayed prior to Russia coming in. But that's something we're going to have to deal with down the road. But moving forward, I think I would very much like to hear him say that uh, uh, he's going to temporarily suspend uh, some of the restrictive uh, programs he's initiated in this country for oil production at least until, unless and until the, the, the Russian crisis is over so that they can uh, better choke off Russia's economy. Because that's the only thing that's really going to help uh, Russia stand down is we help them choke off their economy. And all these sanctions are, are nice and good and, and productive and helpful, but that would really hit them where it hurts. So I, I would love to hear that from him going forward. And quite frankly, we've had enough of divisiveness on both sides of the fence. And he's been a disappointment in that regard in his first year. Um, and so I, I would love to hear from him a lot more uh, of a unifying message and a bipartisan message. We really haven't seen that. A lot of his major legislation has been unilaterally Im imposed. And I, I, I would love to see, and I, I don't care if he's a Republican or a Democrat, if he wants to work on a bipartisan basis, I'm here to work with him, and a lot of us are. And um, I sat in the Oval Office with him in February and uh, to talk about the infrastructure deal, and I ultimately supported it. And I caught a lot of heat for it, but that's, it was worth it. And I think we'd love to hear things that are going to unite this country. I think the American people are sick and tired of all the divisiveness. And uh, he would show true courage if he could do the oil, uh, take those steps I, I laid out for the oil. But also, he would, he would do well to, to try and unite the country instead of continuing to be divisive. Yeah, and in addition to supporting the infrastructure bill, you were also one of the 10 Republicans who joined Democrats to vote to impeach former President Trump after the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, did this, along with President Trump's call to get rid of all 10 
Republicans that can uh, that voted against him contribute to your decision not to run again? Not at all. In fact, I I was quite certain, even with uh, the the redistricting that was done in um, in New York State, that I could I I had a path of victory, and I had a very good path to victory. Um, I think a lot of people on both sides of the fence um, understand what courage is, and understands what stepping out is, and understands what taking brave stances uh, are, and that's what they like to see in leaders, and that's exactly what I like to see, and I would like to see with respect to Biden. And so, no, it didn't. Um, quite frankly, I've been in government service for 32 years. Since I was 28 years old, I'm going to be, I'm staring down 60 in November, and you're supposed to say, "No, we don't look that." But uh, <laughs> uh, and and I just uh, understood, you know, there's never a good time to leave, and I do unfinished business. But uh, there's things I want to do in the private side, and I think for for the rest of my life until I take my last breath, I'm going to be doing things that are involved with helping keep our country safe. That's all I know how to do as an adult, because that's all I've ever done, and I'm going to continue to do that. It just uh, it's time for time for me to step away, and you know what? Uh, we should have people doing things, doing that lot more in this office. And we don't need people here for 30, 40 years. I'm a very big believer in term limits. And, uh, and I said that before I ran, and I still believe it now, that a change is good. And um, I think that uh, the next person that comes up and runs a Homeland Security Committee will be great, whoever it is. And uh, that's a good thing for our country. And this is a citizen democracy. It's not something where you work, I don't believe you should have a job here for 30 or 40 years. I just don't think that's uh, what our founders envisioned. Well, in the spirit of your newfound freedom and, and candor, um, do you, <laughs> what do you think the former president's effect has been on the Republican Party and, and has it been damaging? Well, I think, um, uh, well, damaging, it's hard to say. He won uh, and a lot of his policies were very good. Uh, and we, we did a lot of good things. We had tax reform. We projected much more strength on the world stage, which kept bad guys like Putin in check. A lot of good things that president did. But um, I think I agree with Attorney General Barr and others that sometimes his inability to discipline himself with respect for his rhetoric really hurt him. And uh, that's the biggest that's the biggest concern I had with respect to the, the president. And, uh, you know, going forward, does he have a role to play in the party? Absolutely. But should he be the party standard bearer? In my opinion, no. But others feel differently. And. That's what conventions are for, and that's what primaries are for. And I think we have a wonderful bench of really highly qualified people for 2024, and we'll see what happens going forward. I think it's going to be, uh, um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how it, how it is going forward. I don't think he's going to run away with anything. Uh, he obviously would be the front runner, but there's obviously a lot of highly qualified people that could do a very good job. And if he could tone down his rhetoric, um, he would be very formidable. And you worked with your colleague, uh, Congressman Betty Thompson, to establish the January 6th commission. Obviously, that was met with resistance and did not work out. But what is your assessment of what the committee ultimately turned into and the work that they've been doing so far? Well, the biggest thing I was concerned with, because I have a law enforcement uh, perspective, is that um, how do we keep the Capitol safer? And how do we um, uh, uh, make sure the Capitol Hill police is a much better police force? than it was because clearly that day they showed their shortcomings. And those are two things I haven't heard a lot of hearings on, a lot of discussion on. And that's the one thing I would really like to see more of. And that's what my committee commission would have focused on. So um, has it become more partisan? Yeah, of course, it's, it's, there's far more Democrats and Republicans on there and um, it's not a balanced, uh, a balanced committee. My, my committee would have had to have consensus for every subpoena that was issued from Democrats and Republicans. And my committee would have ended on December 31st of this past year, which would have given us some clarity as to, uh, in, in moving forward. So 
instead it seems to be dragging out. And um, I think, you know, Benny Thompson's a fine man and he's a good friend of mine. And he's doing what he thinks right and I respect him for that. I, I just wish that we had to commit, I, I wish the commission focused on the safe, safety and security of the Capitol and, and the improvement of the Capitol Police. And, and Congressman, you said that passing the infrastructure deal was one of your top accomplishment. What is topping your agenda for items that you want to finish before you leave office? There's three of them, cybersecurity, cybersecurity, and cybersecurity. To me, that's, I'm very, very concerned about that going forward. It's not my sole focus, but it is a disproportionately large focus of what we're doing on Homeland Security right now, because and, that and, really uh, is a big thing. And Congressman, before we wrap up, I want to ask you the message that you have to convey to being one of the more moderate voices of your party before you depart Congress. Sure. Like, listen, uh, when, when I came in, I said I want to be a moderate and my entire career, I maintain that status as one of the most bipartisan members of Congress. I don't think that's a stain. I think that's what our founders envisioned. I think that's what we once were as an entity in Congress on both sides of the aisle. I think that um, uh, the rhetoric is so overheated down here. And I think it's, it's sad when you see so many good people get subsumed by the partisan politics. I, I think people back home are sick of it. And if you look at it in your marital relations or your personal relations with people or in business deals, no one gets 100% of what they want. But down here, it seems like that's what they want. And if they don't get that, then you're a pariah. And to me, that's not how it works. You got to cut deals. You move on and do what's good for the country as a whole, not just the part of the country that you think uh, you believe in politically. Well, Congressman, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But congratulations on your retirement. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And have a good day. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.